Hello, everybody. Welcome to tonight's edition of From the Boardroom to the Locker Room. And as I mentioned last night, I had a lot of apologizing to do to my neighbors for all the noises on Sunday evening. Well, I'm glad to say that my apologies have been accepted and the chances are that they want to know why I didn't hear them screaming. What, of course, is this all about if you've been living in another planet? was the fourth of the four quarterfinals over the weekend, and we're joined by Andy Capistano, sports writer, commentator, journalist, on tonight's edition to unpack what happened on Sunday. And I think we leave the most controversial one to last. Let's start on Saturday, if we can, and first to say good evening to you, Andy. How are you? I'm very well, like the rest of the country, I'm still coming down from that endorphin high of Sunday night. We'll get to that in a moment. Let's start with the other Saturday's quarterfinals, the Argentinian game against Wales and, of course, the uh, England game against Fiji. Uh, are you up to speed with what your predictions were? Are the four teams into the semi-final the ones you expected? Um, I think that I think I gave Fiji a chance and I gave Wales a chance but um but the the outcomes of both games were largely predictable the Saturday night game was a cracker but um uh, to go back to Wales Argentina I think it's fair to say that Wales have played above themselves for the whole tournament um they they still couldn't quite on them um and Argentina have uh, started the tournament really, really slowly, somehow managed to get into the quarterfinals. They're in the semis against the All Blacks. And who wouldn't give them a, a puncher's chance in a fight? What was so fantastic for me was that the game of rugby won. I mean, I understand we're all here in South Africa, and yay, South Africa are through and all the rest of it, and there's disappointment for the teams that didn't make it. It was no game that had a 20 or 30 point margin. It was down to the last minutes in most of the games. Um, and each one was as exciting as the other. And, and what I think was even more significant, Louis, was that each one got better uh, in terms of quality. I absolutely agree that there's been so much talk about, oh, they got the draw wrong. But it led to four amazing games of rugby in and some people are actually writing and talking about the fact that it's the weekend that saved rugby. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure that rugby needed saving, but that I think the point that people are making is that you could have parachuted in from Mars and not known anything about the game and still enjoyed um, just the visceral engagement of those four games. And I was obviously like most people, and I guess you as well, was really worried um, that perhaps TMOs and referees might make decisions in the quarterfinals. I guess they did a pretty decent job. And in fact, one or two calls were quite outstanding. Well, there was the famous one um, that didn't result in a in a card or anything other than, than a penalty um, from, uh, I'm trying to remember which uh, referee it was now, it might have been Ray Now. Um, where people were going, no, but I mean, that was a yellow card stroke, a red card for the rest of the tournament. And as I was watching the England-Fiji game with, with my wife, we, we were amazed at how little we saw of the dugout, and uh, not the dugout, the bunker. Yeah. 
um, which is almost dominated uh, pool play. And yet you really didn't see it in the Fiji-England game. And there were a number of incidents where we thought, oh, well, that'll be referred. And it never was. Almost to the stage, and I can't even bring myself to say this, that somebody in world rugby had had a word that um, they decided, okay, pool play's over now. Let's go back to normal. <laughs> and the only downside uh, um, that I saw across the uh, across the four games of the weekend was that um, poor old Ibn Exabeth got to the cooler for 10 minutes for a rugby collision that the previous referee would have just said, play on. Yeah, two points that you've raised that I was going to ask you about. The first one was that I was worried that the physicality of the game's would be diminished come quarter-final stage because of the way it had been refereed and the TMOs had got involved during those pool matches. Um, yet, as you say, it didn't happen. And then the Evan Etzebeth story, as tongue-in-cheek, I guess the French hoped he didn't go off because that 10-minute break for him, plus the half-time break, actually made him even fresher when he came on in the second half or came back on the field. And, and wasn't it amazing? I mean, the, the, the one moment of the game that will stay with me forever was his try. Um, and watching it again in replay and just seeing he's surrounded by people and he just says, no, this is my moment. And I actually wrote about it on Scroller saying it was a bit like watching Gulliver on Lilliput with yeah. these people just bouncing off our our mighty Eben, um, who remember when he was at school uh, in Tegerberg, um, people always talk about um, uh, the lock combination um, uh, with, with his um, fellow, fellow Springbok Marvin Ori. But that never happened because he played centre at school, remember? Yeah. And and just the the sight of him carrying half of France across the line to score what turned out to be the key moment of the entire game it is something that I will remember. Um, and and it reminded me in a way of the 1999 semi-final when France played against New Zealand. And New Zealand started like a train. Um, they got themselves into a position where they probably couldn't lose, and then they lost. And there was a moment when the current French coach, Fabien Gaultier, had to tackle Jonah Lomu. And I remember him wrapping himself around Jonah um, like a shawl. And Jonah just didn't know what to do. And Fabien Gautier would not let go. And that and that was the moment from an amazing game of rugby that has stayed with me. And that's what I think I'll remember about Sunday night's game is Ibn Etzebeth's moment. Well, go back in a moment and talk in depth about the South African game. But the disappointment, I guess, from a world rugby point of view was the Australians. Oh, today, Eddie Jones has said... Uh, in his uh, typical Australian accent, I ain't going nowhere, mate. Now, staying with Australia, I can't work out why people would think he would go anywhere, considering the next World Cup is in Australia. He can be an absolute hero if he coaches them to the victory in Australia. Um, but do you think his selection policy is the downfall, or is Australian rugby just poor at the moment? Oh, the latter. Unquestionably the latter. Um, I, I see once again um, that they're using the let's buy a rugby league player um, idea to try and get them out of the morass. But um, there's there's something deeply wrong uh, with the structures of Australian rugby. I suspect it goes all the way down to schoolboy level. Um, this is the worst five-year period for an Australian side that 
I can remember. Um, I I remember them vaguely in the 70s. Um, but what I most remember is in 1984, um, when Andrew Slack's side came to the UK um, and did the Grand Slam against the the four home nations uh, with the Ella brothers carving up Mark Eller in particular at fly half and David Campesi on the wing, a young David Campesi who was just a force of nature. And that team was based on the Randwick way. Um, and that turned out to be the template for Australian sides going forward. And of course, through the 1990s, when um, the Brumbies were carving all uh, up all before them, and remember that uh, their coach was a certain Eddie Jones at the time, um, we all we all thought, well, you know, Australian rugby has always been and it always will be strong. The fact of the matter is that it is a roller coaster ride um, because in Australia, rugby union is so far down the pecking order. Um, that when suddenly they don't produce half a dozen world-class players at once, um, they have to rely on uh, on their structures and when and their structures don't work. So um, Australia will come back. I always say to people, if you see an Australian on the ground, kick him <laughs> because he won't be there long. I fully agree with that completely. We can kick the cricket team down at the moment as well. Eddie, you talk about uh, them looking to poach players from rugby league. What are your thoughts when you watch these teams play, particularly um, in the Northern Hemisphere and to a lesser extent in the Southern Hemisphere, particularly the islands, where you see uh, a skuman, uh, you know, uh, playing for Scotland, and a Fundamava on the wing. And these players that have either not made it in their countries or by some form of birthright or whatever they're playing for other countries do you think it's made the game stronger or is it made certain countries weaker i would say unquestionably it's made the game stronger um and the the mere fact that the two strongest sides for the last century the springboks and the all blacks are exporting players around the world is bringing up the standard of the game island um wouldn't have got through to that stage had it not been for the South African players in their squad. Um, I've always um, felt the issue with with both New Zealand and South Africa is that we've got um, a a court to put. So I haven't got a problem with sending them around the world and bringing up the standard of the game elsewhere. And, And I think it contributed hugely to our enjoyment Okay, so let's go back now, if we may, to the South Africa-France game before we look forward to the semi-finals. Uh, I was privileged enough to be at Kings Park Stadium in Durban in June of 1995. And besides the fact that, under normal circumstances, I don't think that game would ever have taken place. It was more like a water polo game than it was a rugby game. And I was flashback. 10 minutes before the end of the game that we watched on Sunday evening to the dying moments of the South Africa French game in that semi final with an up and under that was taken by James Small on the try line in the dying moments of that game. And I thought to myself, oh my goodness, um, are we back to that situation and will it perhaps be revenge for the French at the end of the game on Sunday evening? I'm sure you can remember well, it. Well, Ab- Abdul Benazi, of course, uh, ended up getting across the line. He still, to this day, claims that he scored. Yep. 
The most fascinating line ever to come out of that game was was Ruben Kruger. Um, he said, against France, I didn't score, but I did score against the All Blacks in the final, and that one wasn't given. Yes. So that's, uh, that, that's how games turn. I'm sure um, your neighbours were hearing you screaming in, the, in those last frantic two or three minutes when when trying to milk a penalty out of the referee. And I thought the, the referee did an amazing job not, not to lose it in those circumstances. And the South Africans also did an amazing job. What has got them to the status of now back to world number one is the quality of their defence and the fact they had across the field. They weren't overcommitting people to the breakdown. They were making sure that the referee was... Uh, when that ball went to ground, I was reminded of... Uh, of the Bulls teams that won the uh, Super Rugby uh, trophies. And they used to practice keeping the ball and going forward in the way that France were just to wind down the clock. Um, and Heineke Mayer used to, used to have a stopwatch and he said, in, time them in training and say, right, we've got three minutes. You need to keep... And when the boot's on the other foot and you have to defend that, it is all about time is that where the referee can he see me um and in amongst all of that make sure that he stopped the ball carrier and that was the amazing thing that the the french had lots of ways to hurt the south africans but there were lots of talking points that we can go through but i guess when we look back at the game the experience of the springbok team when you can bring on as substitutes three players who played or even more played in a world cup final previously and the fact that they've been there done it got the rugby jersey i guess at the end of the day that counted for almost everything let's go back 24 hours to ireland losing against the all blacks um it was such a tight game but my feeling having had a chance to to sort of think about it is that that irish side was filled with players who had achieved in New Zealand last year, um, grand slams in the Six Nations, um, the URC wins, various other things. And it just happened that that quarterfinal against New Zealand was the moment at which they went over the top. I vividly remember watching Johnny Sexton, and Johnny Sexton was out on his feet. Um, at no stage did he offer... All he was doing was recycling the ball that was given to him, either by a forward or by his scrum half. And even with all of that, could have won that they had half a dozen players who had just come to the end at the wrong moment. This South African side, to bring it back to what we were talking about, is not filled with old men. It is filled with experienced players who have been there and finished playing, be celebrated as some of the finest Springboks of all time. That's why we're in a position to be able to defend the title that we won in 2019. It is that this is an extraordinary group of players. And I go back to Rassi Erasmus and Jean-Nin Naba taking over with two years to go. Yeah. Lost to Italy. They knew... We were talking about earlier that this country always produces good rugby players. It's a case of identifying through your structures, giving them the confidence to be able to go out and play the game. This is a 
an amazing Springbok side. It's not impossible that they could lose. It is very, very, very improbable. So let's talk about some of the talking points, if we can. And the controversial one that seems to be flying around at the moment is Chesden Colby's charge down. Just explain to us, first of all, how the shot clock works. And secondly, was there anything that you could see that was, inverted commas, illegal about what he did? <laughs> well, um, I, I suspect, Louis, that if he had done something illegal that was picked up by a camera, that we would have seen it multiple times. So um, either the camera um, didn't do uh, his job and bear in five of them, including a drone. Um, and you can't tell me that the drone didn't pick it up. So the the answer, I think, is that he's done absolutely nothing wrong. And, and it was him saying yesterday that it really helped him that he played with Thomas Ramos for six years at club level. He knew inside out the way that he moves towards a kick. He timed it to perfection. He got in his face. And here's the other thing. You know, people are saying it, it changed the game. Well, it was from the touchline. There is absolutely no guarantee that Ramos was going to convert yeah. it anyway. But the point was, what Cheslin Colby did in that moment was that he encapsulated everything that this Springbok team is all about, that never say die. And there were moments in the third quarter of the game when France were piling on the pressure against the Springbok. For the first time, you felt, well, maybe it's not going to happen today. It was a 10-minute period where France was so dominant that it looked as if the Springboks may have shot their bolt, that they'd come up against a side that was just a little bit too good. But... They then got together, turned it around. And remember, France did not score in that third quarter. They didn't score with Ibn Etzebeth off the field. That was the, that was the difference. And Cheslin Colby's charge down of that conversion just encapsulated everything that this Springbok side is all about. Andy, when we look at the game, um, I felt that in the first half, South Africa were drawn into playing the French style of rugby. And in the second half, we played South African style of rugby. Uh, and that, I think, contributed to the lesser number of points scored in the second half. Yeah, I don't know. I, th I think you play what you're allowed to play. And um, remember the controversy about who should start the game at fly half. And the feeling was, well, let's try and put a little bit of scoreboard pressure on France um, because that's what you can do with a Libop there who's going to make things happen. And take away what France did. South Africa scored three fantastic tries, yeah. two of which were largely down to a, a really good piece of play by Libop um, with some fantastic finishing on, on the back of it. But um, you take that away from the contest and you say, well, that's job done. The fact of the matter is that France were good enough to respond on two occasions. And remember, they scored the first try. So South Africa were responding to that. And at half time, you're thinking to yourself, well, this is a remarkable game of rugby. Surely they can't keep this up. And the moment when Eben got sent uh, to the sin bin right at the end of the first half, 
dictated really what was going to happen in the in the first 10 minutes of the second half, which was that South Africa were going to have to defend. They were going to have to try and stop France putting too many points on the board that they couldn't come back from. Um, my my um, takeaway, um, again, from the last quarter was that amazing moment when instead of um, making a normal mark, um, Willemse put his fists together and said, scrum down. Now, I looked at the people I was watching with, and they looked at me, and I have never seen that law applied in any game of rugby that I've ever seen. But um, looked it up, sure enough, there it is. You have the option of a scrum. Nobody ever takes it. But my word, what a decision that was. Yeah. By Obviously, the, co- the coaching staff had a lot to do with it. Um, but it was a case, I think, of saying to France, we're not going to kick the ball back so that you can win it from the line. We're going to make you come to us and we're going to put you in the scrum and we're going to show you that we're not tired. Are you tired? We're, go- we're about to find out. And also they won a penalty from the scrum, which unfortunately they lost the line out from that penalty. But it could have been an even greater uh, result of that decision if they'd gone on to score a try from that position. The other thing that was interesting to me um, and quite shocking in a way was the early substitution of the captain. Um, and then it seemed like for a little while, Bongi was a bit sort of like uh, a rabbit in the headlights. And then when Dwayne came back onto the field, it seemed like everything just became a little bit calmer <laughs> and it went back to that kind of an eye that... I just felt that Dwayne Vermeulen was the reason, in a way, that we won the World Cup last time. His his presence when he came on in that game or the way he played in that game. And the same, I think, happened here. That's why he was picked. That's why he was picked ahead of Jasper Visser was exactly that, to provide calm during the storm. Remember, he was the uh, man of the match in the in the World Cup final 2019, yep. and, and deservedly so. I'm absolutely amazed by Dwayne Vermeulen because I can remember doing... Um, a game at Newlands a decade ago where there'd been a collision in midfield and I was commentating on the game and I was following the ball and something made me look back at Wayne Vermeulen who was sat on the on the halfway line rotating his arm trying to get his shoulder back into place yeah and I thought to myself well that gentleman is not going to be playing first class rugby much longer well, here he is, yeah. um, 37, pushing 38. He might not have the pace that he had uh, when he was charging off the back of the scrum for free state you know, 10, 12 years ago. But he makes up for that with uh, his rugby mind and, and, and the calmness that he exerts on the rest of the team is, is absolutely a significant thing. Um, it wouldn't surprise me in the least, Louis, if he doesn't play against England. I, yeah. I, I think that the coaching staff might think to themselves, well, um, we'll beat England. Doesn't matter what team we put on the field, we'll beat England. So let's rest a couple of guys that have come through a storm today. Uh, and I'm talking about Sunday now, yeah. um, because we're going to need them for the final. And, and uh, Formula might be one of those. Um, and I also felt that um, the early substitution of, of Khaleesi had something to do with um, the coaching staff looking at and and saying, OK, we need to make something happen here. What are we going to do? And they weren't frightened to bring off their captain. And 
it was an, an enormous moment in the game because Khaleesi brings something incredible to this Springbok vibe. And yet they had the courage to bring him off. And maybe it was about, maybe you haven't played quite as well as you played during pool play. Come and have a sit down. We're going to need you for the next two games. Um, and and we'll, we'll change it up because um, the bench that we selected for that particular game had so many strings to the bow that it was it was something that they felt that they could do. Just let's talk for a moment, if we can, before we preview the two semi-finals. Jesse Creel, for me, was monumental in defence. He made some tackles that were just superb. And uh, let's remember, going forward, it was his kick that created the try for Cheslin Colby, and that yeah. was an enormous moment in the game. I'm I'm so delighted for... Jesse. Uh, I've known him since he was 18 years old. Um, his last uh, year at Maritzburg College, I did three games that college played that year. He, he was at fullback in those days. and He was the man of the match in all three of those games. And remember, it wasn't more than two years after he left school that he made his debut against the All Blacks at Ellis Park and scored an amazing try on debut. And it looked at that stage as if we had found a player that was going to be a Springbok icon. And for whatever reason, um, and injuries would have had something to do with it, um, he was always the guy who was left out if there was a a 50-50 selection. And (laughs) let's remember as well that if Lucanio Am had been fit to start the tournament, then Jesse would have been on the bench. But he has been in the middle. He's run the defence magnificently well. Um, you know, Jacques Ferry used to do it um, for the side that won the 2007 World Cup. And, and Jesse Krul is doing it for the side that's going to win the 2023 World Cup. Uh, and I know the family. His mother was a Springbok swimmer and she she supported the twins <laughs> like you cannot believe. Standing on the side of the field, chain smoking and moving them around the country. Um, so uh, there's a picture of Jesse coming off at the end that has been shown a lot, where he looks like a 50-year-old man. That's the ringer that international rugby at that level can put you through. Andy, when you and I are long and gone, they write the history of Springbok rugby. Somewhere in that book, I'm sure, is going to be written about when players were not eligible for selection if they went and played outside of South Africa and how the game has changed so dramatically since we've allowed players to go and play outside our country and come back and still represent the Springboks? Yeah, absolutely. I, I remember the the amount of arguments that, that we had in the 90s about about this. Um, and, and I can vividly remember saying to a couple of grandees um, of Saru, Sarfu as it was in those days, you can say what you like about not selecting overseas-based players, but if tomorrow the new Nas Buerta is signed to play in France at the age of 18 and wins every title and is the man of the match in every game, you're not going to pick him. I don't think so. It was one of the arguments that Jake White had to win at the beginning of his term as Springbok coach was, I need to be able to pick overseas-based players. The first phone call that he made was to Percy Montgomery at Newport. 
And Percy Montgomery became the rock around which that side was built. This particular Springbok squad, if you took away the French bass players, you'd have half the side because um, they're following the money. And that is the modern game is about that. France have got more money than anybody else, and therefore they can attract the best players. But it's a win-win situation because Cheslin Colby, when he left this country, was regarded as too small, would never make it at international level. He went and did it in France, week in and week out, and eventually somebody said, you've got to pick this guy, and now look where we are. Right, two semi-finals this weekend, Friday night, Saturday night. Have Argentina played their final? They come up against the All Blacks. You never count the All Blacks out. All Blacks to win? Yeah. Um, I, I can't see a way around it. Um, they might suffer some collateral damage because there's one thing you know from an Argentine side, they are going to give it to you. Um, and, and on any given day, let us remember, Argentina can beat anybody. They have that attitude of we're not here to make up the numbers. Um, I think over the course of 80 minutes, it's too big a mountain for them to climb, but they're going to hurt some people. They're, they're going to leave some psychological scars and the All Blacks will know that they've been in a game of rugby. And I guess uh, Rossi and, and Jacques will not allow the box to be overconfident going into the game against England. I don't know. Um, I find it so difficult to second guess what, what they're going to do because they, they do some extraordinary things like that. Uh, let's have a scrum instead of uh, kick them up. Um, you, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if on Monday morning they got the guys together. In fact, I mean, they would have had Monday off. So Tuesday morning, they uh, would have got the guys together and said, right, we can't lose. This is not a good England side. Um, we are the best side remaining in the competition. So let's not worry about it. We'll decide who's going to play. We'll decide what we're going to do. But it, actually, it doesn't matter. Whatever side we select is good enough to win the game. Andy Capistano, as always, wonderful chatting to you. Thank you so much for your time. That's tonight's edition of From the Boardroom to the Locker Room. I'm so, so glad. I guess as are the guys standing on the sides of the street, they've got another week to sell flags and uh, replica jerseys. That's tonight's edition. Be nice to each other as always. Until next time. Bye for now.